Hello, lovelies, and welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here uh, once again on the Outsports Podcast Network. And, um, you know, this week, there's really only one thing that deserves any role highlighting right now, considering the uh, the timbre of the nation. The, the world at this point, honestly, um, as we've seen protests um, and demonstrations spawn out of the uh, the death or actually the uh, alleged murder at this point after the charges have been filed um, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Um, we've seen these protests break out in cities in every state in this country. We're now seeing them um, in Tokyo, France, London, just all over. Um, And it's brought a lot of um, new conversation topics, especially within pro wrestling, because there's been a lot of people within the pro wrestling sphere that have been lending their voice to this movement and been very outspoken about this movement. And we have a few of those people on the show today to discuss everything that's been happening. with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement at post the uh, the death of George Floyd, um, and that's going to be the majority, the, basically all the show today. I um, so here with us today we have um, from the Twin Cities, um, we have uh, Russell Rogue. How are you doing today, Russell? You know, uh, I'm I'm okay, um, as okay as I can be. Um, it's definitely been it's been a week. Put it that way. Understatement in a lot of ways, but yes, definitely it's been a week. Um, and also from the Twin Cities, we have um, Devon Monroe. How are you doing today, Devon? Hello, I'm doing um, well. It can be as well. Um, you know, just hanging in there. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you for for coming on the show. And um, from Richmond, uh, Virginia, the uh, co-promoter of Fight Club Pro Wrestling. Uh, Chris Harris is on the show today as well. How are you doing today, Chris? I am here. Uh, it's about as best as it's going to get, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody would blame anyone for for feeling that way. Um, so before we get into it, once again, I I thank you all for for coming on the show, and I really wanted mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, your perspectives um, as um, black wrestlers, black promoters. Um, within this industry to kind of like really get your take on everything that's been happening, um, not just with the protests, but also how we've seen this kind of impact um, or influence rather the pro wrestling sphere um, as well. But before we get to all that, I want to start off with stuff on the ground level. Obviously, um, Russell and Devon, y'all are both in uh, the city where all of this started. Um, so cool. I'm, I'm curious to see, and we'll start with, with you, Devon. Um, I'm curious, what have, what, what has it been like to see this sort of play out in the city? What has been, and, and, um, what has been your personal feeling as you've watched this play out? Um, so I've kind of just been living on my own in Minneapolis for almost three years now. Um, and since I've been living on my own, this is kind of just like the first major event where I've seen, you know, 
you know, so much of this going on around me. And this is the first um, opportunity that, you know, the first opportunity that I've gotten to be a part of it, you know, on my own. Um, so, yeah, I've gotten the chance to be out there, you know, twice, you know, participating in the protests. Um, and it is dangerous. I mean, it's a shame, you know, as a Black man that I have to fight for basic human rights. But I know as a nation, you know, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to do what we got to do, you know, to get the rights that we deserve. It's sad. Hmm. So was this so this was your first time being able to actually demonstrate in this way? Yeah, so I was, you know, living under my parents' roof. I didn't really, you know, do a lot of it, but now that I'm living on my own, I'm kind of just been able to take part in all that. And it's been amazing to see, you know, just peaceful celebrations all around, just dancing, just flowers, murals, just, you know, people coming together um hmm. to support a great cause. Hmm. Uh, Russell, um how have you, how has it been for for you um in the city like seeing how everything is is unfolded yeah so um i've lived in minneapolis for pretty much most of the past 8 years i moved out here for college and um after my freshman year of college was when the Trayvon Martin case ended up happening and that was my first protest and then you know, it was events like that that initially inspired me to want to go into the media because I think I thought I felt that we needed more diverse voices at the time. And so um, a few years later, I was interning for a news station in town when the Jamar Clark situation happened. And, you know, seeing that happen, like as I was like finishing school and seeing like how devastated the community was, but also just how I felt and how like I worried for the safety of my black family. Like it was, it was hard to really remain neutral in that way. Um, I know that as someone who is lighter skinned that I face discrimination differently than most of my family because they are darker skinned, especially when it comes to the police. But I felt, I still felt that ache and I, I see how police and law enforcement and other people in society treat black people differently for how they look, how they talk. And to see that demonstrated by someone with, with an institution that has so much power, it, it's disgusting. So I'm, I'm glad to not be a part of the media anymore, to be quite frank. Um, I felt like there was more outrage when the Philando Castile happened. It like escalated because it was so soon. It was like six to seven months afterward, I think. Um, and then we have, we have George Floyd right now. So this is something that has been an issue in the Twin Cities area for a while, but also when it comes to equity, Minnesota is one of the most inequitable states in the nation. And it's not just with how black people are treated by police. It's with educational attainment. It's with home ownership. It's with median household income. Like systemic racism is rooted incredibly deep in our country, but Minnesota is incredibly guilty of that, probably more so than most, if not any other state in the nation. Mm. It's interesting. I didn't really, I didn't realize that 
that was ran so deep in Minnesota. Obviously, there are issues like within this country that I think many people don't necessarily know how deep they run. But I didn't realize it was, it was like specific to to Minnesota that that sort of thing was going on. Because, like you said, we've seen this happen multiple times involving the Minneapolis Police Department at this point. Um, so, why do you think? Why do you think this one? caught on as much as it did i know there's been some uh critique about or there's been some comments about like the video being a major reason why people have latched onto it but there's been video in other cases like this specifically the philando castile um case like why do you why do you think this one is holding on to as many people as it is um that's a really good question um Part of me feels, and I'm like thinking about how to verbally process this on the spot. There wasn't a gun used in this case. It didn't involve someone being shot. There was no, there was nothing where people can say, oh, like this escalated. This was literally someone who was suspected of having a fake $20 bill and he was unreasonably restrained. And there is a overwhelmingly excessive use of force over something so minute. No one's safety was in danger. And that cannot be debated in any way, shape or form, including by people who have never engaged with the Black Lives Matter movement before. So I think that really plays a big part in it. One more question for both you and, and Devon, and then we'll move on and to talk to Chris about what's been going on on the East Coast a little bit. But um, we now know that uh, charges have been filed against all four officers that were involved in this. Um, you know, uh, one second-degree murder charge, and the other three officers have been charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder all felony offenses obviously how does it make uh, both of y'all feel to to know that charges have been filed now at this point um, for me even though it's still tough it kind of gives me hope it kind of feels like it's like the first step you know towards getting justice you know i'm well aware that we have a long way to go you know but just knowing that everything that we've been doing out here you know all the petitions you know um all the protests you know they've been working out and we're beginning to make a difference um it's kind of interesting to see that shift i've never seen that before i think to add to that too i think Part of what gives me hope is the fact that this case is no longer in the hands of Mike Freeman, um, the Hennepin County attorney. It's now in the hands of the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison. And Keith Ellison is someone who I think has a very strong track record of being progressive, especially when it comes to racial issues. And I think he understands the significance of this case and knows what to look for. And I think we've seen, you know, potential corruption in Hennep with Hennepin County in the past. Um, and I'm really glad that the investigation is not in their hands because quite frankly, at the end of the day, 
any investigation regarding a Hennepin County employee that's being investigated by the Hennepin County County Attorney is a conflict of interest. No, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, Chris, you are out in uh, Virginia right now, and there's been a lot of activity, not just in Richmond, but all over the state, down into the into the district. Um, I'm curious, like what what is it? What have you been seeing out there, and what have been your feelings watching everything play out as um, this movement has spread to uh, to your area and beyond? So the funny thing about where I live in Richmond is that the systematic oppression isn't really like it's not hidden it's very much out in the open like i have to drive past uh giant racist action figures on my route to work every day the statues that are there of people who very much belittle uh the the beings of people who came before me are are things that i have to see every day and when you tell people that it's wrong and that it may make a certain group of people mad, they tell you that it's their heritage and then that it costs too much money to put them down. And there's a, a line of excuses that just kind of pile up. So the, the, the racism and the oppression is out in the open here in Virginia. There's, there's very open discussions about places that uh, if you're black, you can't go uh, just because you don't want to be sure what the police will do once if they do catch you, no matter if you're innocent or not. So to kind of see the the pouring over of people seeing what happened in, in Minnesota and spreading it here is kind of beyond a little bit belief to me. Not not saying that I don't expect people to, you know, also feel that way. It's just when you live it every day. And I've been here in Richmond for nine years. So I I, I moved from DC to Richmond and that it was a culture clash and it's less than two hours away. So just kind of seeing people really stand up and, and say, no, this isn't right. And we're going to protest and seeing the counterbalance of police that are like, well, if you're going to protest, we're going to use force, whether you're doing it peaceful or not. It's really just been kind of as, as terrible as this is going to say, just an experience to see that this is not only happening in my lifetime, but now I can, I can see that this is what's going on with police and this is what's going on with protesters and kind of seeing the line drawn in the sand right before my eyes. Hmm. Yeah, that, it's interesting you talk about like this, the um, the attitude like po pre pre all of this, like where like you already had areas of of the city and areas of the state where you know there's kind of a a feeling or basically an unwritten statement that the black community was unsafe in those places and to see in some ways i don't know does that make you feel like more um i guess for lack of a better word pride in the fact that you the, the response that we've seen um in areas like richmond and virginia beach and um norfolk um at this point i cried uh, i i went to a protest on uh saturday i saw how many people were there i saw the passion and I sat on the steps of the defaced uh, Lee statue and I, I cried for a good five minutes because I didn't, in, at least since I've been here, I have a core group of friends who I know that I can confide into anyone about these kind of issues, but I didn't know as many people felt as strongly about this as I did. So it was genuinely eye-opening to see the number of people were there, the, the passion of the people were there, and, and uh, to see how it played out before the uh, police got involved. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked uh, Russell and Devon. Like, why do you think that this, this one, that this um, act, this death has 
really caused so many more people, so many communities beyond the the ones that tend or normally have been participating in Black Lives Matters uh, movements and campaigns. Like, why do you think this one has really rallied them to the cause? Because I feel like this is the first time in American history that everyone has the access to see these videos and it just so happens to be at a time where nobody could leave the house nobody could go have the distractions there's no sports there's no real new live tv there's no new movies you can't go to the movie you can't go uh, watch this tv show you can't go to a sporting event there aren't the distractions out there to distract you to say i know that this is happening but man this sporting event is happening and i really want to root for this team so i have a conflict of interest of what i want to do when you hold someone's face to the fire and they're so close to the fire and they can't look away because there's nothing else to look at, it's going to cause them to say, you know what, maybe this is, maybe the, the preconceived notions that I had of what was going on in this country are different than what is actually going on because now I can see it. I can physically see this eight-minute video of what's going on, and maybe I wouldn't have had the time to sit and see this eight-minute video because I was at work or I was watching this show or I was just plain ignorant to what was going on. Everyone's eyes are focused on what's going on because it. It is the biggest story at a time where really nothing else is going on because you have to stay home to see it. Russell, uh, Devon, um, what has it meant for y'all to see this thing that really, I mean, it happened on, on the streets of your city, but it's spread into an international cause at this point. What has it been like to see this the community rallying around um, the memory of George Floyd. Uh, what has it been like for for you? How, what impact has it had for you? Um, I can just piggyback like um, off what I said earlier, you know, about going to the protests, and, you know, the gatherings, how it's been nice to just see, you know, so many people, you know, that support the cause, so much joy. Um, there's been art murals all around, just flowers. Um, and I just think it's awesome to see that there's nations around the world who feel the same way that we do, who feel that Black people deserve human rights, because it shouldn't, I feel like it shouldn't even be a discussion. And it just baffles, baffles me that in 2020, it's still something that we have to fight. I mean, these demonstrations, they, they fill me with hope. And it's really encouraging to see the dialogue being pushed forward, to see people coming together who used to be so vehemently opposed to Black Lives Matter and to see people's minds shift. Um, at the same time, though, I think seeing these outside groups come into the city, especially like people who are promoting like white supremacy and white supremacist ideals, and trying to hijack these protests to um, get their message across, to me, it it feels like they're exploiting the death of a Black man for their own gain. And I personally find that to be really disgusting and also incredibly hurtful. I try to focus on the positive, but I know that this element has been at these protests much more than any other protests that I have seen in the city. Yeah, and, and it's, it's hard to ignore that element that is really kind of taking advantage of the situation, like you said, Russell. I know, you know, 
reports of like everybody from I know here in Portland we've had a influx of Proud Boy involvement and stuff. I know that people from the Boogaloo movement have been involved trying to insert themselves in, into that into this these demonstrations as well. Um, and and that really it brings me to my next question actually. Um, a lot of there's been a lot of like division of focus when it comes to the demonstrations themselves. You know, there's been plenty of you know people within the media, people outside of the media who've been really focusing more on uh, looting and rioting over demonstrations, um, especially in the first few days, whenever of, of demonstrations. Um, this idea of like property versus people, where um, you know people have been very reticent to man the doors of a Target store. Um, while decrying, trying to lump um, some of the, the the protest movements into the the more um, agitating forces within them that are not really on the same page at all, what would what has been your feelings regarding the the framing of this? I'll start with Chris on this one. What has been your your um, ideas of the framing of of the argument um, within parts of the media? Of this. Well, I had to generalize it within myself because when everything first started, I feel like I I was with everyone else with the idea of yeah, let's let's burn all this shit. And I had to take a couple steps back because I just realized that that was just a lot of anger that was internalized inside me of, of the country of how I had been treated. But then I actually went out to a protest and realized that it wasn't you know the protesters doing it it was outside forces using that opportunity i feel as though it's it's media division and that's kind of what the media does i feel like there is no there is no conglomerate of media if they can't make people tune in to combat people who are tuning into another channel like i i personally i've always felt that though that the ratings war in media is kind of how they delve and and deviate how they portray things and how they portray things to certain demographics. Um, so I, I feel as though that's into play. I feel as though it's going to be into play in people's mindsets anyway on how they feel about Black Lives Matter protests to start. Those people who have had the ideas that people who protest for the betterment of Black lives are inherently bad people, those people will never have their heart changed or their mind changed, no matter what they see on Twitter or or Facebook or whatever their grandkids are, are showing them because they usually don't know how to use the technology themselves. It's just, it's, it's really sad to see how it's all played out here um, when it's just really a group of people who just want better for their lives and then outside forces are coming in to take advantage of these people who are literally yearning for help, yearning for help to be better. And they're taking advantage of that situation to cause destruction. And now it's gone so far as the president of the United States sees everyone who is protesting as a threat because of the outside forces uh, who have who have destroyed property on the backs of the protesters. It, it's a it's a sad situation, honestly. Um. Yes. I just to piggyback off what he said. I um think the framing of it all is just kind of like um, what I said earlier. Social media, you know, in this day and age, is just so important because you do have those people, you know, who only who all they know is the news. So they're gonna see, you know, what the media wants to portray of these protests. All they're gonna see, you know, is the violence. All they're gonna see is the looting. And I think that's why um, I feel like if you have a platform on social media, 
you know, you could, you should be doing as much as you can to spread the word, you know, to, you know, use your platform, use your following, you know, you know, let people know, you know, things they can do to help. Um, because I mean, I feel like it's just going to keep getting worse if, you know, this uh, movement get, keep, sorry, I'm stumbling. <laughs> if this movement continues to get framed the way it is. Um, so as someone who used to be in the media, I do think that there's a problem throughout the whole media industry, um, when it comes to having representation and mindsets of people of color. Um, and I think a big part of that right now, as some people may know, is that being in the media does not pay well when you start off. And that's a huge barrier, especially towards people of color who don't necessarily have as well-off parents as an average white person might have. Um, my first journalism job four years ago paid me eleven fifty an hour. That comes out to less than $24,000 a year. So um, that's really not a lot to live by when you invest um, four years into a degree. I was very fortunate to not have any student loan debt. And granted, I realized that wasn't for me, but I do think there are a lot of barriers that are really impacting the way that this story is told. And to kind of um, go off of what Chris was saying, like the media it absolutely wants something that they think is going to get ratings. And I definitely think that sometimes in doing so, they really fail on their ethics. Like I didn't really see a lot of journalism, like journalism coverage of when people were at the Lake Street Target that did get looted, when people were going there, not just to clean it up, but to basically converted into a food shelf like we went there and try to get any food item that was still usable and donate it to the community and that effort brought people together and I think it reiterated that throughout this all like throughout all of this like we're still going to show up for people we're still going to show up for people in low-income neighborhoods that are populated with people of color especially um the black community and show that, you know, we are here to unapologetically support them. And um, that message I don't really feel like has gotten across. It's just standard, like, oh, like we're cleaning up, but like, what else, like, what does this cleanup mean? Like, what is the symbolism behind that? How is this helping to not just like fix something, but to, you know, come together and, you know, rebuild a community? Um, and I do also feel that like the overwhelming focus on like the looting and the rioting in a way, I feel like it's, it's depicting the black community to be dangerous. And I feel like that is an extremely problematic trope to instill on the black community, especially since that is something that so many Black people have to deal with every single day of their life because they're constantly seen as more aggressive. And it's messed up. It shouldn't be that way. Hmm. No, you're not wrong. Um, do you, Russell, real quick, do you do you feel like the, the majority of the major news networks have been miscategorizing a lot of their the coverage of this? Just based on what you were talking about with the target? I would say a decent few, yes. And I think a big part of that is because there isn't a lot of 
training that happens when it comes to reporting on sensitive issues. Like, yeah, you learn ethics, but you don't necessarily always learn how to apply ethics in situations when you are reporting on populations that you are not familiar with. And so, um, like my junior year of college, there was a news station in town that thought that it was a news story that the mayor of Minneapolis took a photo with um, a neighborhood organizer and they were like pointing at each other. Like everyone's done like the photo where they just point at their friend, but the reporter made it out to be a gang sign. And there is no way in hell that that story would have been a story if that grassroots organizer was not a black man. It was disgusting, it was foul, and it was a horrible violation of journalism ethics. And that reporter, who had been in the business for at least 20 to 25 years at that point, should have known better. Hmm. No, that's a very good example of um, of, a, of a lot of the, the things that have really been failing in, in that sphere, honestly, speaking as someone who's still in it. Like it's, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, before we move off of the the protests themselves, um, Chris did bring up uh, the president, and it's hard to not talk about this and and not really look at what he has been doing throughout this whole thing. Um, obviously, he's been through his Twitter account. He's been um, basically inciting violence against uh, protesters. Um, he, we saw um, just in the last 48 hours where he basically used the military police to push back pro- peaceful protesters in D.C. with tear gas and flashbangs so that he could have a photo op in front of a church. Um, and it, everything that he, is, that he has done, I mean, I don't think anybody had any expectation that he was going to do anything good coming out of this, but everything up until him saying that he wants to basically use the force of the U S military against protesters um, has been incredibly dour and disappointing to see in terms of leadership in this country. Um, Chris start, I will go back to you and start, start with you on this and we'll get all three uh, thoughts from all three of y'all. Um, what has it been like to see the, the, the president's response in, in the U.S. government as a whole to to all, to all of these things? Par for the course, honestly. I, I, I expected nothing less from him. Uh, if, you, if you read in a textbook when you were in like eighth grade that some dictator used force in order to tear bomb and, and gas away protesters so that they could attend the church and take a picture there. You would, you would read that and go, wow, I totally believe that. And that sounds like an awful place to live. And it is US 2020. That is what we live in because this is the type of person that we have in office. There's a Twitter account uh, at Suspend the Press that has done nothing for the last uh, 72 hours, but tweet the exact same thing the president tweets. And within 12 hours of that uh, account being put up, it was suspended for malicious tweeting. It was suspended because the things that it was tweeting were terrible, but it was the exact same things that the person who was in charge of the country that we are pushing to do better for is saying. It's, that's, that's what his mindset is. That's who he is as a person. And I think that's going to be the biggest, uh, the biggest hurdle in all of this. When 
Martin Luther King was assassinated. Six days later, the Civil Rights Act was signed because Johnson knew that something would happen or something would happen bigger if he didn't move, and he moved. We are in day 10, day 11 of this, and nothing has even, and he's just doubling down. He's using his force even deeper. He's going to send the military to attack civilians instead of just mentioning, or even, he hasn't yet even mentioned why the protesters are protesting. He hasn't even mentioned what's going on. Instead, he's using the full extent of the military to attack citizens who want better lives. That's not the U.S. That's, that's some country that I read in a textbook. That's not the place that I live. But here we are fighting for something that my ancestors have fought for. And quite honestly, my grandkids are probably going to fight for as well. I, I feel like, quite frankly, Trump has failed to lead us throughout this time, but he has failed to lead us throughout his entire presidency. So, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I am definitely not surprised I think a lot of local municipalities have failed to lead us as well. Um, I think they kind of frame everything as, or they try to frame things as, oh, like you should not be doing all these bad things and trying to make it seem like these protesters are violent. They're not violent. They are upset. And for those protesters that, you know, maybe did do a thing or two that's violent. I think that's a reflection of trauma. And for generations and generations and generations, Black communities have been experiencing trauma. And I do think that rioting and looting is a valid form of protest. Um, Even though it's not something that I would consider doing, I can totally understand why it's being done. And I don't feel like that was something that many political leaders at all levels were willing to put an ounce of effort to understand. Um, So it's really frustrating because I was hoping to see a lot more, especially with democratic leadership, but I just felt like I was overall failed. And then when Governor Walls was like, yeah, we suspect that white supremacists are doing some of this stuff it was kind of just like too little, too late. You kind of showed us where you, you know, you stand with the black community and that you are a lot more moderate than we were hoping for. And it's a shame. It's why he wasn't my vote in the primary. I'll, t- I'll tell you that much. Um, I think I can really relate a little differently um, to the two because at the time he was elected for president, I was 17. I didn't even get to vote. Um, you know, I wasn't old enough to vote until the following January. So um, not that my, you know, one little vote, you know, you know, would have mattered, but it just kind of just, um, it's just kind of weird to know that I couldn't really make an impact or make a change, you know, help make that change. And it's just so mind boggling how people can still, you know, support this man who has done nothing but just spew hate and racism. And it's just, I don't know. I'm just hoping just my generation can stand up and make a change. We've been pushing people, you know, to get to the polls, you know, election season is here. We want change. Our generation needs to take it. Definitely. Um, speaking of change, real last thing before we move on to, to other topics here. Um, I know within the last hour or so, Chris out in Richmond, we've seen uh, Governor Northam 
basically commit to removing the Robert E. Lee statue in the city of Richmond. How how does that make you feel? Um, immediately, too little, too late. I feel like mm-hmm. in a couple of days, I will feel a little bit better about it. But having also been here when this was a voted topic and watching the public vote no on it, and then watching people just giving excuse after excuse on why these statues should be there, and even him kind of skirting the issue on why those states would be there. So my immediate reaction is like, all right, like, thanks, I guess. Like, I know this is in response to what what's going on. And if you had, if this had never happened, these words would have never crossed your mind. These words would have never come out of your mouth, but this was just indirect response to what's going on. So I guess it's great. But otherwise, like, I, I feel as though it's pretty empty at this point. Hmm. No, valid feeling, honestly. Very valid. Um, now, these protests, while they started in the month of May, they have um, continued on into Pride Month here. Um, and there's been a lot of parallels in terms of the the protests around George Floyd's death and the Stonewall riots. There's been a lot of people online and in the media and and really everywhere that have been making the correlation between the two and they've also i think what started it started more so in earnest from what i saw last year but this year immediately anybody that i've seen responding about the correlation between the stonewall riots and um the current situation in the country have been very quick to highlight the um, involvement of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and other trans uh, figures in that movement. Um, at the same time, we have seen violence against uh, black trans people as well during the course of this uh, this past week and a half. Um, you know, Tony McDade in Tallahassee um, saw uh, Nina Pop earlier in May. And then most recently, um, Ayanna Dior um, on June 1st. Um, I'm going to go to to Russell first on this. What what correlation do you personally see between Stonewall and, and what's happening now? And um, and maybe maybe we can um, have a bit of a dialogue about the role of violence against uh, black trans people as well in the midst of this uh, Black Lives Matter uh, push. Yeah, so basically, as we all know, Stonewall was basically the start of the modern queer rights movement. I don't think that anyone really debates that. And the Stonewall riots helped light the spark for the change that has happened over the 50 years that have followed it. So I definitely am hopeful that there will be some change that accompanies these riots. I think a lot of similar protesting techniques were used, and I think that they're all valid, and I'm not going to debate that with anybody. Um, I think something that concerns me is that there are a lot of white queer people in particular that are being completely silent or even worse saying that they don't approve of the rioting or the looting yet they don't realize that it was people rioting that 
helped lay the foundation to give them the rights that they have today. Now, I'm not saying that the queer community has the same rights as everybody else, because they still face a crap ton of discrimination. And Devon and I, I think, both can attest to that. But I definitely think there is a large subset of white queer people that basically kind of gave up on advocating for civil rights once same-sex marriage was passed. And it is really infuriating because they're leaving a huge, they're leaving huge parts of our community behind, but also other communities that have struggled alongside us. And um, it's, it's really frustrating to see people who have been significantly oppressed be so selfish and not in a way that's promoting self-care. They just don't care about anyone's rights but their own. And it makes me sad. Yeah, I can um, kind of piggyback off Russell because he mentioned that, you know, the Stonewall, the Stonewall riots was kind of just like that foundation, um, you know, towards, you know, earning rights for the LGBTQ community today. I feel like, um, you know, the riots that have been ha- happening the past 10, 11 days, um, and especially now that the four cops, um, you know, who were responsible for the murder of George Floyd, you know, they have been um, charged. I feel like these riots are going to, you know, start uh, flicker into something bigger. Um, and I just have hope. That's all I can say is that I just have hope. Um, we have to just keep fighting. No, I mean, definitely. I think that that fight is going to continue for a while. Um, I do want to I do want to talk. Um, to both of y'all about the um, the the violence we have seen against um, trans people of color um, throughout this as well. Like I said, you know, we saw Tony McDade in Tallahassee. We saw uh, Nina Pop earlier last month uh, before everything unfolded the way it has, and then most recently Iyana Dior. Um, do you feel like the this these particular instances and other instances of violence against uh, black trans people are getting enough highlight in the midst of the greater movement that we've seen, especially as we're moving into Pride Month now, and the two are basically interacting with one another. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so at all. And I just feel like um, just even within the black community, just like as we move forward with this Black Lives Matter movement, there has always just been an issue with homophobia within the black community. And I just feel like, you know, I can't fathom, I can't, you know, I don't know why they can't realize, you know, trans women are women. Like why does someone else living their truth, you know, bother you so much? You know, these women are getting, they're being raped, they're being, um, you know, beaten, you know, just for living their truth. And it's just, it's sickening to see. And I just feel like um, we need more unity in the Black community, especially if we want this to be stronger going forward. I will have to second everything that Devon just said. Um, I definitely have seen a difference in attitude, and particularly um, when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity um, within the black community, as well as like my um, dad's side of the family, which is where I get my blackness from. Um, Even though my mom's side of the family tends to be a lot more conservative, um, 
think it's really interesting. I know that there's a lot of Black folk who are Baptist, and I know that that denomination in particular tends to be a bit more socially conservative when it comes to um, same-sex marriage as well as just homosexuality in general. Um, But I do, getting back to the main point of the question here, I do think that Black women and Black trans women are well, trans anyone who's black really are oftentimes erased from this movement. Very rarely is there a black woman or a black trans woman who dies after being in police custody and that death results in significant societal conversation. Most people, I would be shocked if anyone can name more than Sandra Bland they probably forgotten about Brianna already. Um, It's really unfortunate that, you know, marginalized groups within an already marginalized community don't get as much opportunity to have their stories told when they are suffering heavily from police violence as well. I do want to double back real quick to something you said um, a little bit ago, Russell, whenever you're talking about um, white queer people um, in terms of like their response to a lot of this. Um, why do you feel or why do you, why do you, not to say why do you feel, why do you think um, there's still this resistance or this um, willed ignorance um, whenever it comes to the the white queer community as opposed whenever it comes to the the struggles of black and other poc uh communities within the lgbtq sphere i think that a big part of it was because when the conversation about same-sex marriage was a thing there was not many other there were not many other queer issues that were actively being discussed at the time Trans rights was barely even mentioned. Trans rights were barely even mentioned. Um, employment discrimination was barely ever mentioned. Housing discrimination was barely ever mentioned. Um, marriage was really what was at the center of the table for such a long time. And then very quickly, you had this shift of public opinion around 2008 to 2010. And then Five years later in 2015 was when SCOTUS decided that same-sex marriage should be legal in every state. And I think when attitude changes happen so quickly while nothing else is being discussed around an issue within that community, some people just check out because they feel that they have really benefited and gotten the lucky straw and they're just like, I don't need to invest in this fight anymore. It's kind of like, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's kind of like being in the stock market and you invest a bit of money and then the value goes up really, really, really high. And then you sell it and you dip out. You could care less about what happens with that stock afterward. I think that a lot of people, especially white queer people who don't have nearly as much to worry about as queer people of color, 
did that to the queer community. And I don't think it's fair. No, rightly, rightly so. Um, Chris, I do, I want to ask you this. Um, Russell brought up the fact that um, black women um, have also been kind of not, I would say, looked over to some capacity in terms of like the. No, you're 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 right. It it has yeah. it, at least in our community there there has been um, sort of this overlooking of the black women who have also suffered just as as well as everyone in this community who has suffered at the hands of oppression, and and it's no secret how the way some of of the black community feel, and it's it's almost curse. It's terrible. It's terrible how why they feel this way because it, it's no different than people looking in the black community to, 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 that that feel the same way about us. That it's now internalized. It's a marginalized group that's inside of a marginalized group, and it fucking sucks. Like it's terrible. I I can I can't speak for that community because I'm not in that community. I'm only an ally. But I can only imagine how that must feel of seeing such an uprising happen. And being empowered, but still knowing, still seeing the conversation that not everybody is really even being included in the movement, it's got to feel awful. So I think that definitely needs to change in, in the Black community. And I don't, I don't know how to properly word the, the point that there needs to be unity, specifically from uh, cis Blacks and straight Blacks, straight Blacks in the community, but that needs to happen because it's not happening now, at least from what I see in my perspective. No, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, we can only hope that 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 unity, for for lack of a better word, really um, starts to resonate here because you know these names deserve to be highlighted as well. On that note, um, I do want to. This technically is a wrestling podcast, and we're all, or y'all are all within the wrestling sphere. I don't want to include myself in that. Um, and we've seen the wrestling community respond to this in, in my opinion, a very boisterous way, I would say. Um, it hasn't been all for the positive. There are some outliers out there, but I would say from, from what I've seen personally, it's been a lot of positive messaging, um, from the pro wrestling community around the movement um what ha- we'll start with you uh, uh devon what has been your um take seeing how people in within pro wrestling um have responded to the the protests and the movement i think it's been kind of just pretty interesting to see i think um there's definitely i think there's a divide um I feel like as a business, as a whole, pro wrestling is saying, you know, that they support the movement. Um, it depends. It depends. I'm, I'm kind of struggling to put it in the words because I know that at the corporate level, like that just is on a different level, especially with the WWE. I kind of can't really put it into words. Maybe um, Chris or Russell could um, put their take in. Yeah, sure. Russell? Yeah, so... Um, Devon, after I speak, I feel like you probably could add some things because we both are basically in the same scene together. Um, basically, I see some people speaking up for the first time and they're, they're getting there on their racial justice, racial justice journey. So props to them, even though they have some work to go, 
Um, I see some people who are completely silent and really only started speaking up for Blackout Tuesday, which makes me feel like their activism is incredibly performative and makes me question how genuinely they actually care about Black lives. Um, I've seen some people be incredibly vocal, and for that, I'm really grateful. But I want to keep seeing that energy once shows are starting again. I want to see people advocating for people of color in the locker room when it comes to being recommended recommended for shows. The same goes for queer people, too, as well as women talent. Um, there's one promotion in particular locally that was completely silent for like a week. And then they decided to participate in Blackout Tuesday. And then they posted a pride message like literally five minutes afterward. And it just kind of felt like you just have to get your activism out of your system and just like post something to make yourself look good. And that's it. Like, I want to see more promotions in Minnesota, especially commit to booking queer talent, talent of color, female talent, not having queer and female talent be special attraction matches because that's incredibly messed up and objectifying to the talent. Um, as someone who has spoken up about things that I felt were problematic in the past, um, I have lost bookings because of that. And I have strained relationships because I felt like I needed to stick up for myself or what I felt was right. And I hope that that doesn't continue once wrestling starts again post-COVID. Um, and if it does, I think it's going to be really telling um, regarding whose activism is genuine, who's actually a supporter of these communities, and who is just doing it for some clout. Um, yeah, I can definitely piggyback um, off what you said. It is kind of sad to see, you know, most promotions, not most, but, you know, some promotions doing that. It is my hope that, you know, after all this is over, that they would continue giving opportunities to people of color and, you know, LGBTQ athletes. And when they do, I'm hoping that it's not just, you know, to fill a quota, just to say that they're using these people. I hope that they're giving, um, you know, multiple people of color opportunities, multiple um, LGBTQ athletes, not just one. You know, there's not, you know, no reason why we're all so talented. We're all so charismatic. We all you know, have so much to give, why it should only be, you know, a select few talent getting those opportunities. We all deserve it. And I'll, like, piggyback off of that real quick. Like, I know some people have looked at Devon and I and been like, we can only use one of them. They're both queer talent of color. Like, we can't mm -hmm. use both of them. And it's like, Devon and I both have different strengths. We have different characters. We have completely mm -hmm. different in-ring styles. Like, we're two completely different performers. Mm -hmm. And y'all are so fixated over the fact that we're queer. No, that ain't it. And that can't be it. No, it, it definitely can't. And and that's really, actually, that's really infuriating to hear that, that, that that's still happening up there. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. it still happens all over the place. But, like, just to hear, yeah. like, after seeing both of y'all, you know, I've, I've, I've watched multiple matches from both of y'all and yes completely different ring styles completely different performers in a lot of ways but to hear that you're still being lumped into like this one category underneath the rainbow like mm -hmm. that's incredibly frustrating to hear yeah hmm. 
Chris, I do want to pivot over to you because um, you, like it's like we said at the top of the show, you are co-promoter for Fight Club Pro Wrestling out in the DC area, which um, is notable for uh, being a hundred percent run by people of color. Um, y'all established the uh, the Pan African um, World Diaspora Wrestling Championship. I hope I got that name right, please. <laughs> um, but like y'all, yeah, there's been a lot of um, push with, with y'all running out in the DC area to highlight talent of color and and queer talent and women and female talent as well out there. What has it been for you from a promoter standpoint? Uh, been like to watch um, the wrestling community kind of play its cards over the past uh, week and a half? I think uh, they put it perfectly. That they, I personally feel that there's a lot of performative uh, performative uh, green and, and performative uh, almost exploitation almost. I feel as though some of these promotions and some of these wrestlers are using it as a free form of promotion or as an advertisement. Um, I don't believe a lot of these people. And that's only because before this was all happening, I didn't see a lot of it. Uh, I didn't see a lot of this going around. I didn't see people outwardly uh, saying how they uh, they really believed what they say that they're doing now. Uh, I couldn't articulate it as best as I could. But uh, I just, from what I've seen, uh, the fact that we, as a, a brand new promotion, were able to come on and bring in all these talented people. We had a show on February 15th. And I looked around at all the talent that we had, and I, it just baffled me how we were able to book all this talent on the same day and why they weren't out killing it somewhere else, how we were able to fly in all these people, how we were able to bring in all these people to be under the same building at once. And we could do that because they weren't being put on other shows. And I think that's a travesty. I think it's a travesty that some of these promotions uh, are, are just flat out not doing it. I think there's, it's a travesty that some of these promotions right now are just putting out the, the flyer, the, the, the text, the talent to say, hey, post this so that way we look good. I don't think a lot of this is real uh, because it, there was no place for it when they were when it was not happening in front of their eyes, when they could distract themselves from something else and, and book people that they know and that they like in shows. Why can't they book people in the queer community in shows? Why can't they book uh, Black wrestlers in shows? Why can't they book Latino wrestlers in these shows? but they can post that they support the movement. If, if their dollar or their shows, and I can go on their back catalog and look at all of their shows and count the number of queer or people of color on one hand, I don't believe much of what they're saying, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I, I think that's, I, I can't blame you. I, I think that's to be expected to have the, that, that feeling, especially whenever people have been less than vocal. Um, in the lead up to all of this, and, and it is very telling that you're like you're talking about your show back in February, where you had a very impressive uh, roster in that locker room for that show, and the fact that you were able to book them all because they weren't being booked in other places like that, I can definitely see the frustration in that. And it's it's not just you know being around it, and I've been a fan of wrestling for longer than I've been a promoter in wrestling. So I, and I've been an independent uh, wrestling fan since I've been 12 years old. I'm 29 years old now. So I've 17 years of watching independent wrestling and seeing it get better, but not seeing it get better as fast as it should or as fast as it needs to or as fast as the talent is developing because there is talent all over the places, but they're only picking, choosing, picking and choosing one or two of these talents to use because they, I don't know if they think the, the audience that they portray to won't 
look up to it or whether they personally feel that it's not good, but it's just really weird to see all these talented queer wrestlers and, and wrestlers of color and women and all of these wrestlers who just are not everywhere. These wrestlers should be everywhere. These wrestlers should be killing it right now, but they're not because some of these promoters, and I'll, I'll be the first to say it, are too scared to put them on shows. For why, I have no idea. But you can see that the ones that are putting them on shows and the promoters that are putting these people and displaying these people in the light that they should be shown in are doing pretty damn well for themselves. Hmm. No, and, and it does beg the question. Like, I think going back to one of Devon's points from earlier, like the corporate response we've seen in, from the pro wrestling sphere, like I don't think anybody was expecting much less than the performative statements that we saw from WWE and like Tony Khan banning Hulk Hogan and Linda Hogan from AEW events publicly, like that sort of stuff. I don't think anybody really was surprised whenever that sort of stuff was done just because of the nature of it um, and everything. But I, I do want to speak to a lot of black talent that has been speaking out online and they've all, a lot of them um, have been really speaking to the fact that they fear that they might lose bookings because of their being so outspoken. You know, everybody, I know, um, you know, Billy Dixon out in Virginia has vocalized that all the way out here to Portland with Jaden. AJ Gray has been very, very outspoken about this um, directly, like pointed directly at all elite wrestling um, in ways. What do you think um, do you, well, one, um, this is a question for, for all of y'all. Do you, do you feel like those fears are more valid in this certain, in this climate right now? Um, And what do, what message would you have to, promotions and, and and promoters that are willing to not book black talent because they have been so outspoken um regarding the the last 10 days i mean i do think that is an incredibly valid concern i feel like it's a very valid concern here in minnesota um despite the fact that we are a so-called progressive state i do not think that the midwest independent wrestling scene, especially Minnesota's, is nearly as progressive as it is on either one of the coasts. Um, As someone who has been told that promoters have said, I don't want to use him because he's gay or I don't like this. Like, you know, he's, he's too flamboyant. He's too much. Like it, 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 it bothers me and it hurts. And it's a lot to process at once. I remember one time a promoter came up to me and he was like, what's your character? You can't do any gay shit or else I'll, sorry. You can't do any. You um, can cuss. You can cuss. That's you can't fine. do any gay shit or else I'll, I'll get in trouble. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to do any gay shit. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to wrestle and I'm going to kick ass while I do it. And that's exactly what I did that night. And then he was telling other people in the locker room that like, he wanted to bring me back, but he didn't like my gear and that I can't look like I'm gay. And it was, it was really, um, it was really hurtful. And then to hear that another perform, another promoter, um, didn't want to really book me in a credible way because of my sexual orientation, that, that really stung too. So, um, if this continues to happen for queer talent, um, talent of color for speaking up for what is right, I think the talent is really going to have to rile together to push back. Um, I think that's the only way that we're going to be able to make change because I think there's a lot of promoters 
that are stuck in their ways. And granted, we could just be like, oh, well, we can go and travel. But like, you know, when shows start happening again in Minnesota, a lot of rosters, they have the opportunity to basically be a clean slate. Like people are relocating. People are deciding they don't want to wrestle anymore. And they have an opportunity to really book talent that is progressive and pushes pushes things forward and is representative of the community and of marginalized communities that haven't gotten those opportunities. So I think to not take advantage of that will be really exposing of a promoter's true colors. And granted, I wouldn't want to work in a space where racism, homophobia, sexism, ableism, et cetera, are upheld. I think it's really crappy when you have newer talent though, and they're trying to get their, you know, start and break in yet. They barely are able to get booked because of who they are. Like we're lucky that we got our foot in the door, but I had to scratch and claw my way to not be Dewey decimal anymore. I hated that gimmick. It wasn't me. It was a rib. And I had to live through that rib for nearly two years And I think that held me back in my development as an in-ring performer for quite some time. I didn't really feel like comfortable as an in-ring performer until like late last year. And I think if we can promote a culture and have promoters book talent for who they are and who they want to be, I think it'll result in a much higher quality product. But am I holding my breath? No. I wish I could though, but... It's it's unfortunate, but the talent needs to stick together. That's the bottom line. What do you think that looks like, like talent sticking together? I think calling out discrimination when you see it. I think, um, you know, calling out discrimination, calling out pay gaps. Like, I know, like, there are talent of color that are being paid significantly less than what they're worth around here. And I think that's BS. Um, I definitely have heard people say like racist and homophobic things like, you know, oh, we should put these talents together because they're black. Like, that's all you got. Um, I think that strength really comes in numbers and, um, we're seeing it on Twitter right now. We're seeing talents stick up for marginalized communities. That same energy and those same words need to go to the promoters when the promoters do something wrong. And while promoters are planning their shows, promoters can't have the mindset that they have right now. They need to be pushed and challenged and they need to be pushed and challenged to do better. It's as simple as that. And, you know, people like to make excuses and say, oh, like, it's not that. But when promoters have explicitly said that and when other microaggressions have been, um, given to you to where you can figure that out it's it's very easy to see through people i can definitely piggyback off that and give my thoughts um i feel like people of color and the lgbtq community everything that we're feeling um is completely valid i feel like especially in this day and age um representation is everything so being able you know like the power of being able to look at a TV screen and see people that look like you changes everything. Like, I don't think that 
um, you know, I say this all the time, you know, if I had discovered, if I hadn't discovered Sunny Kiss, I don't think that I would even be wrestling today because when I wanted to be a wrestler, I did not believe that this was, you know, a sport that I could succeed in. I didn't see black men, you know, succeeding in the sport. I didn't say, I didn't see gay men on TV. So it's like when I saw Sunny, something in me changed. It was like, you know, maybe black queer men can succeed in the sport and it makes all the difference um, promoters have an opportunity to expose wrestling to different audiences, to the LGBTQ community. They're exposing them to, you know, an environment that maybe they, you know, didn't know was safe for them. Um, people of color, you know, by putting people of color on your show, you're letting them know that, you know, regardless of the color of the skin, they can be successful. And people who may want to be a wrestler who may have been, you know, doubting themselves because of the color of their skin, seeing people succeed, seeing that they can, it changes everything. And I'm a testament to that. Everything they said is 100% true. I think when uh, John John Martin uh, and Tyreek and Sarah Pop are, are my business partners with uh, Fight Club for Wrestling, uh, when we created it, the, the tagline that we always had in mind was representation matters. And that was what we wanted going into this. We wanted uh, the, the generation after us, of, of little kids. We always put ourselves in the kids' shoes of uh, with the kid that could a kid see someone that they could relate to and any kid, not just the two or three specific kids that wrestling has been tailoring to for the last seven years, but every child needs to see someone that they relate to. And that's been a big thing for us because it's not, it's not really in the scene. There are, there are, there are people doing it, but it's very few and far between. So I agree with them a hundred percent representation matters. And that's what more, uh, independent wrestling needs and 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 uh, Russell was 100% right. People need to challenge these promoters. Talent needs to challenge these promoters. Other promoters need to challenge these promoters. I have very famously got into a tiff with another promoter uh, here in DC about their practices and ethics in their in their wrestling and what they do and how they uh, book their talent or refuse to book talent. I think there needs to be more of that. I think if there needs to be, if there's going to be change, it needs to be vocal change. It needs to be change from people in positions, not just you know, spatterings here and there, not just retweets. I think these needs to be focused change on, on people in wrestling. I think these people need to be out of wrestling, to be quite honest with you. If you're not willing to book everybody, don't book anybody, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. And, and you know, we've actually, in the past couple of days, seen it kind of spill out from the actual in-ring product into, like, some of the revenue streams that a lot of independent wrestlers use. I know there's been some issues taken with uh, the proprietor of Pro Wrestling Tees, um, based off of some social media stuff as well. Um, I'm, I would don't necessarily have to, to speak to it if you don't want to, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about like seeing that play out or any other aspects of in terms of like how you make your living as an independent pro wrestler um, play out in, in the past few days. Uh, if speaking to me, I just found it really funny that uh, he could he forces people to, or, or one hour tees or pro wrestling tees forces people to read that 20 page document when you find your papers but he literally just couldn't read the room when he made that tweet it's just insane that he would say that and I, I, I back everybody that decided to leave one hour tees absolutely and um, just to like piggyback on that I feel like I mean for him to not even be speaking much on the issue you know as it is before and then to tweet what he tweeted and after that to act like you know he's been you know supporting all along it was just a little weird um but i mean hey there is other t-shirt vendors out there so we're not tripping when i saw that tweet i didn't really know what to think um it felt like 
he was centering himself around the issue in a way that felt very consumerist. And that, that to me was a red flag. Um, and like, I, I don't want to say too much about him personally, but I, I definitely felt like it was out of touch with the real issue at hand. And that was the real problem with what he said. Um, I've seen other stuff like come up and I've seen him block people that I've tried to have conversations with him. And all I can really say is I hope that he unblocks them and is willing to open himself up to more of these conversations because that is how people grow. If you block people that are challenging you, but aren't like harassing you or threatening you with your life, you're a part of the problem. And we have to be willing to have these conversations to really push things forward. And and honestly, like picking back off of that, Russell, I think that's a good way to kind of branch this back out to the larger picture as we start to wind down here a little bit, because we have seen um, within this this movement and and all of the the social media activity regarding the protests and and the the response to George Floyd, um, a number of cases of you know people either like quote unquote clout chasing or people that are using the movement to promote things that are very centered on themselves and and um, have been trying to basically take advantage of a situation in a different way as opposed to other people that we talked about earlier um start with uh with chris on this one what do, uh, what opinion do you have um regarding those people like not, not necessarily within wrestling itself but it can be within wrestling anywhere else really um what 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 are your thoughts on people that have tried to like come in and use this movement for um, ulterior motives? I mean, I feel like, I feel as though these people are opportunists. They're going to wait for any opportunity to, to cause their harm anyway. And that's, that's on the, the microcosm of wrestling. And if you zoom it out all the way out to the movement in general, there are people who, who seek the opportunity to get any step ahead and do anything they can to get ahead on what they're doing to, to pose their agenda. I feel as though uh, in wrestling, I think wrestlers and, and even promoters at this point are vocal enough to kind of stomp those people out, which means that that kind of policing, as, as terrible as the word as I want to say, that kind of overseeing of that works, right? We can get those people out or at least call those people out on their BS. On a macro scale, we can't necessarily do that because at the end of the day, like we are as a majority, but our voices are the minority here. So I feel as though that's what needs to happen as far as getting these people out of the movement. It's just going to be really difficult because they've already, from from the media to, to people on the, the, the harsh right side of the wing or even the small right side of the wing, all the way up to the president, have already lumped everybody in one. So it's going to be a difficult thing to try to separate the people who are actually starting the shit from the people who are genuinely trying to advance and move forward on the micro of the wrestling scale is if we can just tell these people to shut the fuck up and get them out of the scene, or at least tell them to stop uh, piggybacking on the suffering of, of black wrestlers and queer wrestlers. then uh, I feel as though we can do a much, uh, it's an easier job, so to speak. Um, I pretty much agree with everything Chris says. I don't really have too much, um, many um, personal thoughts to add into it. Um, I did like what he said about how we are the majority, but our voices are the minority. Um, 
So definitely uh, discussing that it's important to use them as much as we can. And I think adding to that, um, when we like, I definitely think that it's all, it's seen as a lot more celebratory when a white person in particular comes out to support us. And in a way, well, in several ways, I think that's incredibly problematic. It's like, oh, you said something that was pro Black Lives Matter. You get a pat on the back. You get all these brownie points. Black people don't get that because we have to do this every single day of our lives. And like, it's great to have solidarity and I am here for it. But I also think that there needs to be an increased effort to really amplify the voices of Black people and put their voices at the front of this movement and give them the most credibility. I completely agree. And and I'll be full disclosure right now. That was one worry that I personally had when putting this show together, because like as, you know, as a white man, like I, I like to use this show to promote voices that speak to things that, that I can't speak to, even though I'm, I think I'm in the queer community, but I don't know the experience of everyone within the queer community. I definitely don't know what the experience of, of black people and other people of color like y'all. And so like, there was a lot of nerves with, um, being portrayed in that way for me personally. So um, it's, it's, I think it's a, something that white people, no matter what community they're, they're in um, culturally really need to sit and think about when it comes to highlighting the voices that need to have prominence in this. So, yeah. I think when it comes to just to add one more point, when it comes to uh, white people, uh, and the movement, like we can tell when you're genuine. Like, it, like for everyone that's that's like worried about it, like I, we can tell when you're genuine, and we can tell when you're not genuine. So we can weed these people out very easily. So that's that's kind of my last word on it. So even those people that are kind of faking it through, like we know that you're faking it through. So your days are numbered. Well, um, last question for all of y'all. Um... We've seen what has unfolded in the past 10 to 11 days now um, with all of the protests, all of the um, the activity and the push for better policing, justice, equity uh, across the board um, in this country. Moving forward, um, because the protests are likely not going to be ending um, in the next few days. I would hope that they don't. Um, what do you hope ultimately um, comes from from this, from what we've been experiencing in the days since George Floyd's murder? I mean, uh, to sum it up as easily as I can, I just hope we see change. Um, I think these events are happening in like a very crucial time. You know, like I said earlier, election season is happening. Um, and then our presidential election is coming in November. I feel like just if these protests continue and we continue to fight, you know, for change, we can continue to use our voices to convince people to get out there and vote. Because I mean, you know, as much as we use our voices and as much as, you know, we sign uh, petitions and stuff, the real change happens at the polls. The real change happens when we, you know, elect officials that are going to fight for us. 
I will piggyback off of a lot of that. I think that, you know, in Minneapolis, especially, I really want to see Minneapolis restructure and seriously reevaluate its police force. It's less than 10% composed of citizens of Minneapolis. It is not racially representative of the city. And I think that that's an issue in a lot of major cities with their police forces. I think that needs to really be looked at, but I don't think that the racism ends just with policing. I think that it's rampant throughout our entire society. And like Devon was saying, we need to encourage people to register to vote, inform them of all of their options, especially in the time of COVID-19. Like in Minnesota, like please request an absentee ballot and don't go to the polls and risk getting sick. And even then, like we have to tell people, participate in the primaries, help decide who's gonna be on the poll in November, hold your politicians accountable because they are representing you and your community and keep this going. This is not something that can stop. We have to normalize having these kinds of conversations and we have to normalize that it's okay to be political, especially when our life experiences are political. We don't get to escape that. Yeah, I I live with a lot of exhausted cynicism when it comes to just kind of the grand scheme of things. My our our ancestors have fought for this. My grandfather is missing. Well, he's he's passed on, but he was missing two fingers uh, because he was bitten by a dog, uh, a police dog. Um, so, to, I, I'll I'll sum it up to say, vote, and not just vote in. The, the the every the 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 national elections don't just vote in your primary elections vote every year vote and figure out who your police chief is vote and figure out who your mayor is vote and figure out who all these people on the chain are so you know so you know who the voted officials are you know who the chain of command is you know how these people got in these spaces so that way when things like this happen or or, or to prevent to prevent things like this from happening because if you are paying attention to who's in your precinct or your ward or however your city is laid out, pay attention to these things. My hope and my goal, quite honestly, is that we just end up at the other side of this 1% less bad than it was going in. Because that's, that's not as hopeful as I can possibly get, seeing how far we've come from me uh, as, a, as, a, as a three-year-old in my first memory of something being racial to now a 29-year-old in my last memory of something being racial. Seeing how little progress has been made in those 26 years, uh, my hope is that we just end up 1% less bad than it was. So that way my great-granddaughter or my great-grandson, uh, my, 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 my children's children's children are fighting a little less hard than we had to. All things that um, that we can hope hope for. Um, yeah, all three of you, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I definitely want to give you all a chance to let everybody know where they can find you online, and we can keep this conversation going, um, no matter what avenue the, the that it can happen. Um, starting with uh, with you, Devon, where can people find you online? Um, I am on all social media at the Devon Monroe. That's D E V O N M O N R O E. Nice. And Russell? I am on Twitter at It's Russell Rogue and Instagram at Russell Rogue. That's with two S's and two L's because apparently a lot of people spell my name wrong. 
I'm not Ruffle Rouge. Don't try that. Not Mel Gibson's wannabe film. Oh, hey Chris. Uh, you can follow me at Instagram and Twitter at the Chris Kazama. That's K A Z A M A. You can also follow Fight Club Pro Wrestling at P A W D underscore WC. That stands for Pan African World Diaspora underscore Wrestling Championship. Cool. Good to know that I get the name right after hearing you say it. Dude, you scored it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, once again, thank you all of you for for coming on the show, and and hopefully, um, we'll have brighter days ahead. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) My thanks once again to uh, Russell Rogue, Devon Monroe, and Chris Harris for coming on the show. Definitely um, give them a follow online and continue to engage with not just them, but all of the... um, figures within pro wrestling that are putting their voices to this movement. Um, Engage with the movement in general. Um, Educate yourself about um, what is happening and why the streets of nearly every city in this country are currently flooded with people who seek true equity, true justice um, in this nation. Um, Yeah. And if you feel so moved, find a way to offer your support. You know, not everyone necessarily feels comfortable being physically out in protest right now, especially with the COVID situation. And there are other ways, you know, even if it's something as simple as, you know, signal boosting through social media channels to donating to bail funds or legal funds or nonprofits um, that, that focus on these sort of things. Like, there are resources out there online um, that where you can let your voice be heard if you don't feel comfortable being out on the streets um, shouting in, along with everyone else that is calling for systemic change in this country. Um, yeah, that's going to do it for, for this week's show, though. Um, do have to throw out some thank yous, though, before we get out of here, like we do every week. Uh, the Progress Pride Flag Design by Daniel Quasar is a product of Progress Initiative. You can find out more at quasar.digital. Um, big thank you to Sarah and the Safe Word for our show's theme song, Formula 666, off the album Red Hot and Holy. You can find them on Twitter at STSW Band, and you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp at sarahandthesafeword.bandcamp.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at WonderboyOTM. You can follow the show on Twitter at LGBTRingPod. Um, you know, I know uh, over at Outsports we've done some coverage um, regarding the, the protests and, and how it's intersected with um, athletics. Um, I don't know if we've necessarily done enough, but um, we are lending our voices where we can right now. Um, that is for sure. Um, but with that, um, we will say goodbye for this week, and we'll be back next week with another show. Um, but until then, um, you know, 
two weeks in a row, I don't necessarily feel like our normal sound off or sign off is uh, really what needs to be heard in the world right now. So, uh, in lieu of that, I think there are some other words that need to be heard instead. George Lloyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, James Scurlock, David McAtee, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray. Yonder Dior, Michael Brown, and so many others. Too many others. One is too many. But so many. Too many others. We'll see you next week.